The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Swedish-British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroff-Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, my name is Pella Neuroff-Taylor. I'm your new correspondent uh, on geopolitical affairs in Europe, uh, based in uh, near Stockholm. And today's guest um, is a South African woman who's written an absolutely fantastic book on some of the events of the late apartheid South Africa. Um, I've got to say something that I'm, I grew up in the 1980s where apartheid and not the Cold War was the big motivating issue for people. Um, I was at a boarding school near Trafalgar Square in London, and I remember going up after prep, which is our homework, every evening going up to the to the square where most protests were taking place outside South Africa house against this wicked regime. And it was a 24-hour vigil. And I remember later going to university and the main student's bar was called the Mandela Bar with uh, posters of this um, martyr for freedom plastered all over the bar. And then I think it was on my second or third year at university where um, Mandela was released and it was a, a, a matter of great rejoicing. And I guess for most Brits, even more so than the end of the Cold War because uh, apartheid uh, was just so emotional. Um, and it seemed that the, the Australians and the Commonwealth who'd urged a strong approach towards uh, apartheid South Africa were proved right. Whereas Margaret Thatcher, for instance, who'd opposed sanctions to try and bring apartheid to an end was, was wrong. And um, I remember um, after 1994, there was the rainbow election when we all thought everything was gonna be good. And it was one of those, like the end of the Cold War, a fantastic news story that had turned out well. And um, the liberal media were quite self-congratulatory because they saw that they played a part in the ending of apartheid. Uh, newspapers like The Independent and The New York Times and The Guardian. And I remember going off and covering other stories. I'd just finished journalism school in Eastern Europe and the end of communism and, and the recovering from communism was the great issue of our early, of the 90s. So the Yugoslav Wars and the Bosnia conflict concerned me much more. But I think, um, and what happened was I lost, we lost interest in South Africa. And I think the media went on to greener pastures. And I think we assumed that the, the liberal story was the only correct story that the Afrikaners who were the, they spoke a, a variety or a language that was close to Dutch and they took most of the flack for apartheid. Whereas the English speakers who were almost half the population sort of got away with it because often they were liberals and they had good contacts in the Anglo media. And they said, it wasn't us, it was the, the Afrikaners and they're very primitive people. Um, but I had to find out what one of the um, realizations of my journalistic career is that mainstream media are often incorrect in a lot of their uh, coverage of issues. And um, that's not part, that's partly by design, I think, and partly by accident, because you're writing about the first draft of history if you're a journalist and and it's, you're always up against the time limit and uh, you have incomplete information. But I think sometimes they're subjected to ideological pressures from their peers, uh, from uh, powerful uh, news editors and proprietors, and also maybe even you know intelligence agencies and, and other things. Um, so I decided to go back to South Africa to revisit the place, to see whether the liberal media had got, in my view, the Yugoslav war was wrong, had got Iraq war, 
you've got Syria wrong, and now I've got the current Russia-Ukraine conflict wrong, whether they're also wrong about South Africa. And I met mostly Afrikaners who were very good interviewees because they're very keen to show that they were uh, actually not the evil Hitler types that kind of still is instantiated in Western public opinion. And one of the most interesting persons I spoke to was Anna-Marie Janssen, who's a, an author and um, is uh, wrote a, a very, very good biography of uh, Eugene de Kock, who was the leader of the South African Death Squad, um, which executed, they were mercenaries, they're not mercenaries, they were uh, special forces who went into neighboring countries and uh, knocked off ANC activists. I mean, the ANC was the African National Congress which now rules South Africa. And I thought she, she managed to give a, a perspective that almost made you understand and sympathize why people on the Africana side were, were, they were human beings too, and why they were worried about how South Africa would end up if uh, in black majority rule. And also she painted a moving portrait of a man uh, undergoing terrible psychological traumas. And I guess also quite bitter because I think he was the only man who spent uh, who paid the price, as it were, for, for being part of the apartheid regime. So the people, his superiors, as it were, the ministers and the heads of the National Security Council, they got, to, got off scot-free and they're living in their nice garden suburbs, whereas he actually spent something like 20 years in jail, a high security prison, and, um, you know, in his orange boiler suit or whatever, and let out only once a week. And Anne-Marie describes this, her visiting him. She, she said she was a housewife in the 1980s and 90s and not particularly concerned about all the political struggles taking place. But she started going there once a week and sort of teasing out his story and becoming friends with him. And finally, this ended up in a, in a very, very moving and good book. So she's my first guest who would, I'd like to present here. So Anne-Marie, um, I'd like to... Um, ask you what got you into how did you discover this subject and describe us south africa you grew up in the 1970s and 80s this dual society where it was very well off if you were white but impoverished and terrible if you were black what did you what looking back on it how would you assess that period it was a period hello the um the media was um really something that was very much uh, controlled by the state, by the apartheid state. So up to about 1989, which was a pivotal year uh, the world over, it was very much uh, fed to us, uh, you know, what was happening. For example, what was happening in the townships around us, etc. Um, I grew up in a house where my dad was part of the Bruderbund, which is a, a type of a brotherhood, uh, the Afrikaner organization, which controlled very much of the, the state, the church, the schools, um, and also the idea of a um, almost like a chosen people was advocated. And I have to say, and I am extremely shamed about that today, but um, I didn't question anything at that time. You went to school, you went to university, um, there were bursaries available for all of us uh, for teaching, for the, you know, uh, the boys mainly went to the military or the police because they were drafted, uh, and you carried on with your life. 
And then I moved to small towns. I was married to a civil engineer and sort of out of the, and then to Namibia, out of the, the, the main areas where things were happening, let's say 89 to uh, 92 and between 92 and 94, it was only much later, 2011, 2012, when I first met Eugene um, and after the, the initial meeting at the prison, I went back and discovered that, you know, this is the prime evil that I've actually forgotten about, you know, or haven't right. thought about for a long time. What made you, what, how did he come across? What sort of, did he live up to the prime evil moniker of, of, of tabloid law? When I met him the first time, it was, Actually, every time you meet him, he's extremely intelligent. He's a very good conversationalist, although he tend to take over the conversation mostly because um, I think they were also in prison starved for attention. So he would um, talk nonstop, but interesting, funny. And uh, as soon as I got back home, I started um, researching and I found that and I couldn't bring the person that I saw and, you know, the 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 the. Um, the prime evil uh, media persona that he um, developed, you know, I, I, I couldn't reconcile the two. And that's actually what kickstarted my research. And then you went to see him and I get, you, you took notes on your wrist or something. Is that right? With a That's right. Um, you couldn't take in papers. It was very much a, uh, sometimes they allowed something and sometimes they didn't. So I saw him twice a month for an hour at a time for about three years, and I'd write the or I'd I'd, I'd write down on my arm uh, questions that I'd want, just words, you know, things that I wanted to um, ask him, memorize it, go back to the car and start writing it down, and that was more and or less how we convey, you know, how he conveyed uh, information over to me. What were his crimes? What was he in for? What were the terrible things he'd done during apartheid? Yes, Floodplus was tasked with, uh, it was, it's commonly called uh, a death squad. It was a, um, an operative arm, I'd say. It was C-10 of the, I think it fell under the security police. And um, they were tasked with eliminating, which is the, the, the sanitized word, uh, eliminate, el eliminating enemies of the state. But it, were, it was, um, they, they worked according to them, um with spe with specific targets in mind hard targets uh, at that and before that in the 1970s he'd been a, a tracker or something or in, in in namibia which was then a south african annexed protectorate uh where today it's yes. namibia then it was south africa southwest africa and he was fighting soviet trained angolan forces is that right or SWAPO, the Southwest West African People's Organization. Correct. Correct. Um, yes. When we grew up, all the boys uh, at school with us uh, were drafted, so it was a normal thing. Everybody went to the to the military or the police. Eugene joined the military for a year, after which he switched to the police. Eventually, he land. He, he did service in Rhodesia, um, Zim, the the previous Zimbabwe, and then he was drafted to Namibia. Um, to a unit called Kufut. Um, not always remembered in the best ways um, because they also did a lot of things that weren't 
right, but you always have that situation where you take policemen in blue, you know, who has to do policing, and you put them in uniform, you know, you make them, you militarize the police, and that's what happened with Kufut, and Eugene was extremely good at his job, so good, in fact, that the general saw that, and that's how he got drafted for flock laws, which wasn't a good idea. What um, what was the feeling? Did he feel that he was fighting a losing war? I mean, there, you had a parallel thing. You had the military, you had the death squads operating, and then you had the, the politicians, because then you had F.W. de Klerk, who was the president of South Africa, who looks alarmingly like Gorbachev, who was liberalizing his country. Um, or did he was he hopeful that some something could come out of it? I mean, what what were they doing that was were they were they um, feeling that they were onto a loser or were they making a difference? You know, it's such a good question because they I, I, I see a prevalence of um, guy uh, uh, the guys are feeling when I speak to them sometimes that we've lost the war which is a terrible feeling, I think, for anybody fighting in a war. Uh, they they never won the war. But in hindsight, looking back, how could, you know, it it how could have how could it have been expected? But I mm. think Eugene, up to I'd say 91, 92, were utterly convicted or uh, convinced of doing the right thing and fighting the war and protecting everybody, you know, as they mm. were trained to do and um brainwashed to do mm. why how does he feel about being the only person who uh, was uh, tell us about the what happened when he was the, the court case that brought him to and tell us a little bit about the truth and reconciliation commission so that the way that south africa got to terms with its past meant a lot of people talking in front of courtrooms and in public forum where you tried to get to terms with it what happened when? Uh, what happened in the mid nineties with uh, with Eugene de Kock? Right, his court case started in nineteen ninety five, and um, he was the only one on trial. Something interesting that happened in his trial was that he always used to stutter, and he one day during the court case just decided that he won't give the generals the satisfaction of hearing him stutter ever again and it stopped and he carried on um but somewhere during his trial everybody had turned against him and were testifying against him and he decided that he's not going to let that stand he's not going to get let everyone get off scot-free and that's why he decided to testify at the truth and reconciliation and Although Eugene will always be remembered for the terrible deeds that he did, um, he will also he also was the first and I think the only person at the Truth and Reconciliation from the white side that spoke the truth and gave some sort of a um, comfort to the uh, relatives of victims, which nobody else did. And for that, I think he will also be remembered. That was that's in the words of Desmond Tutu. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, you finished the book in uh, a few years ago, and what has, what has the reaction been? I mean, it's living it all over again, I guess, for some people. Um, you've um, uh, Eugene got out in two thousand fifteen, I think, and what 
has his subsequent uh, life been like? It is so interesting because, um, you know, Oscar Pistorius, you will know who he is. Um, you know, the, the, um, the infamous um, murder story with his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. He is on parole now. And um, I, I heard on the radio that he's, he's going to be under surveillance for five years, in which, during which time he also can't speak to the media. But after that, I deduct he'll be able to do that. Now, with Eugene, he came out on parole in 2015. It's already 2024. He is still on parole. He um, still cannot speak to the media. So it's, what, eight, nine years? So, And his um, parole papers consisted of a single page. So there are many inconsistencies in the whole process, and it damaged him to a certain sense. I kept contact with him. He was fine at first, then he uh, uh, um, had a total breakdown, and now he's more settled, carrying on with his life, but in a very subdued way, almost prison-like, you know, keeping to himself. Does he feel remorseful or does he feel, let me let me think about, because uh, I used to think, well, the people who pull the trigger, they're the guilty ones, but um, one of the major political events of my lifetime as a journalist was obviously the, the Iraq War of 2003, where Tony Blair uh, and George Bush waged an aggressive war against Iraq and hundreds of thousands of innocent people died. So Tony Blair has a foundation and he's earning a lot of money and he's invited on to talk shows and he seems to show no remorse or understanding at all, yet his orders led to lots of deaths. Whereas a guy like Eugene de Kock, who, who personally killed in, in rather gruesome ways, you know, so sometimes, let's say hundreds of people, as a maximum figure, he gets jail and is expected to suffer remorse and so on. Is there a certain double standard there? I reckon so, Pala. And I, I mean, it's the same in every war, like you said now with the Iraqi war, and we've got many wars that we can refer to as well. Um, I think, you know, perpetrators are always a, a contentious issue to discuss. The, the perpetrators with the... Um, you know, physically doing the work with a gun or with their hands, you know, like at the front um, is more, um, they are more visible maybe. And you, we, we tend to see them and especially with Eugene being um, convicted, etc. But mm. the one step away, your decision makers, definitely they are accountable as well. Right. Well, we, this is an absolutely fascinating question, absolutely central to current geopolitics and the uh, questions of morality. And we'll continue this discussion after the break with Anne-Marie Janssen. Thank you. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and 
a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Propaganda versus the truth. You're with Swedish-British journalist Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. We're talking to Anne-Marie Janssen, who's written an excellent book about um, South Africa's prime evil, one of the most high profile of apartheid's evil men. And she got to know him and discovered he wasn't the monster of uh, media law. And that raises questions. I mean, really about issues like if, if the media can be relied to tell the truth about anything, which has been one of the abiding interests of my my professional life. And, um, but also, um, I, I, it raises questions. I mean, I think there's evil inside us all, uh, which is one thing. And and um, a third thing is, you know, should the little guy be pay the price for uh, following orders? And uh, what sort of um, world do we live in where he was the one who spent 20 years in jail and his superiors, the ministers, uh, kept living in their nice places? But I want I want to ask also, do I know that you're in touch with a very interesting group of, of men, which is the sort of former, you know, policemen who were active in the in South Africa. I mean, not not for the death squads, but normal policemen and so on. You have you have good contacts in the ex security community. I know you spend a lot of time going to pubs and um, and being one of the lads, you know, and you've got enormous uh, credibility with them, you know, because you won't rat on them. You're not a typical liberal journalist who'll go there and then say one thing and then write another, and you really try to get inside their heads. What is their feeling? Do they feel sort of, when they look back at contemporary South Africa, could you tell us a little bit about contemporary South Africa after 30 years of ANC rule and how they feel about that South Africa, not necessarily how you feel? And do they sort of feel, well, you know, we told you so, we were defending something and you, you have to have some sympathy for what we were doing. Hello, that's also extremely interesting because um, I am actually, and hindsight is always easier, but I am actually uh, going to, uh, I'm working on a book and my research is concentrating on the um, townships that we had um, in the East Rand, especially um, close to where I live, which saw the worst of the violent transition in you know 92 to 94 and well no let's say from the late from the beginning 80s up to 94 95 and the men that were drafted at 18 years old the boys and went directly into uh, 
terrible conflict situations. So it's their stories that I collected, um, about 20 of them, of the riot unit police, a specialized specialized unit um, sanctioned by the government to keep law and order in uh, the black communities, and they lived in the townships. So one of the questions that I actually want to ask each of them although I have these stories, is precisely that. Do you think it's right where we are now, 30 years past, looking back? Because mostly my feeling is, and it's, it, my feeling is that it's going to be, I told you so, but, you know, it's going to be totally open and non-judgmentally listening to that and recording what they're saying, because that's what's that that is what interests me, to record how they're feeling and what they're saying, regardless. Yeah. I mean, what what's um, there's an election this year, and I guess South Africa's the ANC, who've been this um, monopoly party. I mean, it's been it's a democracy, but the ANC don't have a lot of political opposition, so they've been ruling a practically one party state uh, with elections every few years. Are, how are they going to defend their record? Do you think? I mean, tell us a little bit about some of the infrastructure problems. When I was there, you had up to eight hours of power cuts. And I remember visiting a um, a railway station or some of the railway stations, and they were just ruins, basically. And uh, the the policeman I was uh, in whose company I was was the kind of walrus moustached gentleman who talked about the, the commuter first world commuter lifestyle that people had they'd be standing on the platform and get on their regular trains and now the trains are subjected to to gunmen firing on the moving trains and and the actual train tracks are being ripped up and squatters living on the abandoned stations it looks like a sort of nuclear apocalypse zone so i mean a lot of in a lot of areas like that uh, south africa is really going backwards you know but then there are nice shopping centers and so on it's a really strange country and as a journalist, I, I mustn't make too hasty conclusions of those few trips I made. What would you say about contemporary South Africa, the, the state of, for people who don't think about South Africa from one year to the next, is it a, a first world country? Is it a third world country? You know, do things work? Can you make phone calls? Will you be stopped by the police? Can you go out in the streets at night? Okay, that's a very complex question. We are a highly polarised um um, nation. So you will know all the the statistics about the uh, um, the uh, percentage of poverty and uh, uh, um, job uh, that needs to be created in South Africa and everything. So yes, we do have that. But then, Pale, we are we 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 the state this uh, this strangely uh, resilient kind of people. Us, us as South Africans, and I'm talking from my own personal perspectives and my observations. You know, somehow we've always we always have this hope. You know that things will go better. You see all sorts of things now. Um, on the one hand, yes, we've got the problems with electricity cuts. We've got some water cuts, um, etc. And ironically, it is affecting the townships, the the very people that have put the ANC in power are actually the ones that they are not looking after at the moment. Okay, but that's a different situation. What I want to say is that economy-wise, it's interesting in South Africa because on the one hand, 
you have a very vibrant economy in your townships and your black communities called, they call it quasi-nomics. Um, Gigi Alcock wrote a very interesting book about it, and it's generating billions of rands. On the other side, and it's a very informal cash-driven economy, on the other side in South Africa, yes, we've got the electricity that's a problem, we've got the, um, the police who cannot uh, get to everything, they cannot police properly, the funds are not there, but now it's getting privatised. I think with privatization of the energy alone, they've um, come up with about 5,000. I'm not quite sure. Let's say a, a, a quarter, no, not a quarter, maybe an eighth is already um, supplied, power is already supplied by private uh, suppliers. The same is happening with the police. The private security industry outnumbers the police now four to one, and they are normally the first responders to any incidents. Um, all right, that in one sense. To live in South Africa, uh, you have to be streetwise. It's a wonderful, beautiful, broken country. You have to know your way. You have to you have to be streetwise. Um, you cannot just walk alone at night. I wish all tourists could just know that or get a little uh, uh, um, um, summary of what to do and what not to do, you know, when they arrive in South Africa, because if you just adhere to certain things, it's such a wonderful place. When I was down in South Africa, I mean, I know that the, like, the murder rate is like the third highest in the world or something. And it's a, it's a strange world where, because I felt a great affinity for South Africa. I mean, I know that Honduras and Colombia have maybe higher murder rates, but South Africa is a kind of Ang a country where an Anglophone feels very much at home. I remember going to airbnbs and you see D dick francis books from the 1970s you know and having bacon and eggs for breakfast in the mornings and people have a familiar cultural references at least you know when you talk to the whites but then you go out in, on your on your first day in south africa and every single house has uh, barbed wire and two meter three meter high walls and there are um signs saying you know fox security whatever they're called we we arrive in 30 seconds and then I, you talk to people and they say oh yeah i've got an app on my phone and if i press that app the security will come in 30 seconds i've got a panic button in my car if i press that button the security will turn up every single interview i, I know maybe they're talking it up for a sort of credulous foreigner or something but i mean every single interview i had uh, with south africans they talked of uh, of a re close relatives who'd been carjacked or murdered or, or shut up you know so there's one guy for instance who said oh yeah well well i i had coffee yesterday and uh, with a with a friend in the local starbucks or whatever you call it in south africa and there was a shoot pop out and three people died on the street and he just sort of happened to drop that information oh yeah and i was carjacked twice last year and then i went to a computer shop with a with a, another guy and bought some cable or something and we came back home and he said oh yeah they were robbed last uh and a few, three months ago and six people were killed, you know? So, I mean, I know that I'm living in Sweden right now where there's quite a lot of talk about um, an anxiety about gang crime and so on, um, partly due to large immigration, partly due to Europe's open borders, which mean that, you know, uh, gangs from the Balkans can now travel to Sweden without any problems, without any passport checks. But it's a source of constant worry and the, even the mainstream media kind of latched onto this. But I mean, let's get real. I mean, Sweden has a murder rate of 1.5 and South Africa has a murder rate of 40. So for every one 
person you know who's been murdered here, 40 people would have been murdered in South Africa. Do you think, tell us a little bit about how, I mean, how can that figure be turned around? And um, what would people like Eugene de Kock have made about that? Because I know that the old police forces are chomping at the bit because they're saying if they'd only done this, you know, we we had, we were tough police force and it was unfair, but we, my, by God, we kept the relative peace or something like that. How do you have access to all these people? What are they saying about this crime rate? Yes, definitely. Uh, they feel that they they did it much better and it was under control, etc., which is actually a very skewed way of looking at it. But, you know, Pala, with a whole apartheid system, um, I've just read some research about it yesterday. The whole, the, the violence in the townships sort of fostered um, a, a, a situation where criminality could prosper and develop. It's really started there and it has never stopped. And it is one of the main things, you know, in South Africa, if if we could lock down on the corruption and also on the criminals, but I, I, I cannot see a solution for that. I, I cannot at this moment with the current government that we've got in place. Um, I cannot see how we're going to turn that around. But I have to, I, I would like to say something else as well. For me as an ordinary citizen, it doesn't matter whether the ANC is in power or the IFP or the DA or a coalition, which is most probable. Um, you, what we want is like a stable government, you know, transparent and above all else accountable. Before that, you know, I don't think we can solve any of these problems. Although on the ground, many people are doing a lot of things to make things work we are doers you know we, we we're not sitting back and waiting for the government to do it funny are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future i think chaos always presents opportunities and i see south africa you know it's it's the place i was born in i don't want to move here um it's so full of stories and wonderful people generous kind warm funny it's it's um Yes, I am hopeful. And you make Thank you, Anne Maria. Thank you for a fantastic interview and uh, good luck with your future of South Africa. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing. Nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes across all missions has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community 
In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Swedish-British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroth-Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. This is um, Per Karlsson, and he's a longtime producer and journalist from Sweden who is probably the best known or the best, the most distinguished of uh, Swedish journalists because um, most Swedes only make a career inside Sweden itself, but he's actually gone on. He was uh, attracted to the bright lights of New York and went there after graduating and moved and became one of the, the team's uh, startup members of Fox News and knew Roger Ailes very well and had to suffer his tantrums, but learned everything you need to know about skullduggery and uh, kind of tabloidy journalism and had uh, covered many interesting stories and went to Baghdad and had a career as a, an acting bureau chief there and found to his astonishment that, that people he met, the soldiers whom he respected, had enormous respect for Fox News, whereas he found that uh, a lot of uh, the staff he worked with at Fox News had a more lighthearted view of their own profession. I mean, they were not, he realized that people actually watched Fox News and treated it as the gospel or the Bible. Whereas he, his experience of working inside Fox News was that people inside it were were sort of into office politics and into other things, you know, but they didn't always have the putative audience in mind. And that was an eye opener for him. And then he went into Al Jazeera and spent many years there, which also, which is a startup operation and then ended up as a top producer. And I thought what we talk about today is a, a common realization we've had about the mainstream media, although we've had totally different career trajectories, which is that um, something like uh, a, a kind of disillusionment and a, a disillusionment that we want to get out as a service to the public. Uh, per Carlson, ex-producer, what would you say about that? Well, I, I would say, first of all, um, that what I'm about to say doesn't necessarily apply to every journalist in television news or producer or to every network. I can only talk about my particular experience. Um, but there are many different aspects to this story that I think many of our viewers may not realize. And one of them is, for example, if you look at the way news gathering actually takes place in cable television news internationally, there is a dirty secret that most people don't realize, which is that uh, to a great extent, the editorial information and the news gathering is taking place outside the networks by 
other organizations, most importantly by the Associated Press and the Reuters wire services. So every morning you come into work, the first thing a television producer or journalist does is to check the wires. And the news meeting that normally takes place at some point late in the morning at either Al Jazeera or Fox is to a large extent driven by what Reuters and the Associated Press is highlighting. And that sets the standard, that sets sort of the, the floor for most of the news operations and newsrooms that I have worked at. And after that, you know, each network will have their own take on the news. But what also happens is when you send a correspondent and a team out into a breaking news story, they usually don't have enough knowledge or time to really research the story that they are supposed to cover. So the way you, it works is you send out a correspondent and a team, let's say to, uh, to Baghdad, for example, um, on a breaking story. And the first thing the correspondent does when he hits the ground is to call into the news center at home and ask what is happening? What is the latest information? And then the news desk will inform the correspondent and the team on the ground what they are supposed to report back to the audience. So it's completely backwards. Now, this is, a, this is sort of a trade secret, but it's nothing really um, remarkable about it. But that's how news is usually covered, at least in the initial stages of a breaking story. I remember I had a colleague at Fox News who went to Rome to cover uh, the Vatican because the Pope was sick. And when he arrived at his live position on a rooftop in front of the Vatican, he had no information, no way of contacting any officials in the Vatican. He didn't have any phone numbers, etc. He called New York and asked for information about what was happening in the building behind him where the Pope lives. That's basically how news is made these days. And I think that is important to realize if you want, if you if you ever wonder why news seems to look the same no matter where you turn, that's one of the reasons. And it's just part of the nature of television news today that you don't have enough time and resources to really dig into a story in most cases. And so when the American soldiers in Baghdad came up to me, I was running the Baghdad Bureau at the time for Fox News and paid their respects and explained how much they listened to what we were reporting. It was an honor in many ways, but I felt that, that was, it was not really a deserved honor. Do you think there's a kind of uh, an unspoken agreement between newscasters then not to reveal the tricks of the trade? And as long as you stick to the same story, no one can find you out. So if everyone is, uh, I remember when I was based in uh, Brussels and um, I always made a point of going to every single department, every single news conference. And I mean, there are 26 directorate generals and there's some of the more interesting ones with actual like it or not you know but power over european citizens but unglamorous and i'd go along to those press conferences and talk to their bureaucrats to find out what was going on in their area and there'd be almost no british or swedish or whatever journalists there but they all crowded into the commission european commission which is the the brain of the european community european union and then they'd go to the half hour conference and then they they'd all sit in a huddle or stand in a huddle and agree on the day's line because if they all agreed that they'd heard more or less the same thing, then they couldn't, 
it was a kind of conspiracy against someone who's yeah. making his own yes. way around and finding his own story. So that's uh, part of the, and in a way, when if everybody, everybody reads from a Reuters telegram, then they're all covered in a way because they're all sticking to the same story, even if it's not the real story. Would you agree with something like that? Yes, definitely. And I covered the United Nations in New York at the UN headquarters for many years um, for Fox. And we would often go to press briefings uh, or, which is more common on a daily basis, you uh, stake out the uh, delegates and the members of the Security Council uh, in the corridor outside the Security Council. And then you sort of try to uh, talk to the delegates when they come out, get the latest information, or if they have had consulting, a, a, a consulted meeting, then you don't really have any public information. So it's very important to understand what really happened. And so all the journalists will come together afterwards to exchange the latest information, because while I'm talking to the British ambassador over here, maybe my colleague from Reuters mm. will be talking to the American delegates. And I need to have a good sense of what happened over there. So he will tell me, I will give him some information or her. And that way, exactly, a narrative is built. It's very hard to keep uh, a sense of being an outsider under, under those circumstances. And eventually, uh, there is a sense of what are the appropriate questions to ask? What are, what are the appropriate uh, uh, aspects that one should cover? And it's, it's hard, especially if, you're, if you haven't covered a story like that, to, to get the confidence that you, you know what kind of questions to, to ask. So you listen to more experienced uh, reporters, and it's not necessarily the way that uh, news should be uh, manufactured, I think. Yeah, but Did but you also worked in 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 London, right? So so you must have had a similar type of experience in London that uh, most journalists tend to agree on what to cover. No, I think so. Yeah, but it was particularly uh, striking about Brussels because it, it was um, only one place where the news. I mean, uh, in UK media, you have. Uh, local media local journalism and people going out into different places and a much larger journalism core whereas brussels the british press had about 10 people there probably now it's about two or three so they could much more easily create a cartel of information and i think i mean adam smith you know the famous economist said um, all professions are a conspiracy against the laity that is to say if you're ice cream manufacturers too much ice cream manufacturers in a particular town you'll gain from the fact that you fix the prices together and that's why you have anti-competition laws and maybe media needs something like that but i mean do you think um in a, in a way television you you said something about people growing when they appear on television i mean you you it's almost like um you could take some religious parallels uh, I mean, now that we've become post-christian television has some of those um almost people have a, a religious belief in what they see on the box. So if you appear on television, you're something greater than if you, than you outside the television. It, it's like a magic magic medium somehow. Uh, would you agree with that? And, and do should we continue that myth? Because people need, need to believe in something and need to believe in television. I agree with that. And I, I've always, I was always disturbed by the fact that if I approached a government agency and said, okay, my name is so-and-so from Fox News or Al Jazeera or whatever, 
then all kinds of doors would open up. And I felt that, well, why are they trusting me necessarily to know what kind of information is valuable in a particular situation? And as I said earlier at the outset, when it came to my experience at Bag in Baghdad, uh, that the relationship between the people that we covered, uh, especially American troops and us, uh, I think reflected the fact that just because you see an image on television, you take it so seriously. Whereas the people who work behind the scenes, they basically wing it in most cases. You know, for example, if you if you imagine that you are working for a daily news channel, they will have several bulletins during the day to cover. They will have a bulletin at 12, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. When you're covering a story, they will call you from headquarters and say, well, what do you have for me for the next hour? So you feel a sort of pressure to, to come up with something, anything, even if you don't really have a particularly new piece of information. And so you keep doing this on a daily basis. There's very little time left for real journalism. And, and, and so I think that uh, the viewers should be very careful before they listen and and take for and take take it as gospel what they are listen what they are hearing on the channels and uh, these days, uh, oftentimes what you're looking at is uh, smoke and mirrors. People who have been sent somewhere, they may or may not know much about the country that they're covering, and they may not even know much about what's happening in the building behind them. So uh, that I think I think is something that needs to be told and, and for people to to understand. And do you, I mean, I read someone, some critic of the media saying that, you know, with Formula One teams, you have the sponsor's name on the, on their suits. Should we have television presenters having the sponsor's name on their lapel and their blazers and so on? Would that be a fair thing? I think it's not I sponsors, think but who the, who the powers that be, that be are, yes. let's say if it's Rupert Murdoch yes. or something, and I, MI6. Yes. <laughs> I think one should always follow the money no matter yeah. what kind of situation you're in, that will help you understand a lot of what is happening in front of you. But now you've taken a break from Al Jazeera, I think, and you have plans to to try and reform. You're still idealistic about journalism. You still believe that good there is good journalism to be done. What is the future? What How can good journalism be done? And are you doing anything? What projects do you have that are kind of looking that are trying to improve journalism real create real journalism well as for me personally i'm currently involved in uh developing documentaries on a number of different subjects uh, mostly political and historical and biographical those are things that i have, i'm personally interested in when it comes to journalism today i think what's what's uh remarkable is that here you and i can sit here now and openly discuss these matters. If we try to do this on Al Jazeera or on Fox News, I think it would be very difficult to have a free floating uh, stream of consciousness talk, talking to each other. I think that uh, alternative media is still at the early stages of existence, but now everyone essentially can be a journalist. And I think that is actually a healthy thing. The, the only other way of, of handling this, I'm, I'm afraid, is to go back to the old paradigm of only having a couple of news organizations that had a public interest and who were steeped in the sense of what, what objectivity really means. 
But I'm afraid those days are, are over. Well, we grew up with the New York Times and ABC as being uh, truthful or uh, very truthful. They, they took their public service mission quite seriously, even though they were private companies. And um, I grew up on the, on the idea of the Washington Post, for instance, and, and, and all the president's men. I mean, that was a hugely powerful recruiter for, for journalists, for journalism schools, where you saw uh, Robert Redford with his shirt sleeves, in his shirt sleeves, and grabbing a piece of paper and rushing across the beautifully lit newsroom and talking to his boss at his feet on the table, that sort of thing. But I mean, behind all this, there was a sense that journalism was more of a public service. And now, I mean, I think a lot of the media criticism that I read uh, is severely critical of the New York Times, for instance. It, it's not the newspaper it used to be. And you've lived a lot of, in New York and you have a lot of New York friends and contacts. How do people feel about the New York Times? I mean, the, the New York elite, which still kind of rules the world, as it were, do they still trust the New York Times? Have they got that far in their understanding? It depends on who you talk to. I have friends in New York who a couple of years ago still felt that the New York Times was the essential ingredient to a healthy breakfast. And then slowly they have changed their minds. I mean, I think that it's very clear that New York Times has become a campaign journalism instrument for the woke left in the media world in New York. And I think it's a shameful uh, development to see how that paper is, is becoming more and more politicized by, by the day. And I, the problem is you live on your, on your, on your record, you live on, on your past in terms of being uh, a credible news organization. And I think it's, it's slowly catching up to people uh, unless you belong to, you know, Trump's campaign, who clearly have drawn their conclusions uh, a long time ago that the New York Times is simply a joke. Yeah. I mean, you, you need to have a, co a common media culture, perhaps, for democracy, because with what we're seeing in the United States now is half, well, 40% of the population literally doesn't believe a word of the media that the other half of the population reads. So there's no common history. I mean, just like Ukrainians and Russians or Russia and the West don't have a common narrative of history. They don't think, they don't know the same things about what happened in the past. Americans are now, uh, some people talking about a pre-Civil War situation where they, their heroes are not the same heroes and their reading of history is not the same. So do you think, how can we avoid a very conflictual situation in the election coming up in the US, which you, I know you follow closely? I think it's going to be very difficult um, because both sides uh, feel that the other side is pursuing an illegitimate witch hunt on 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 the other side. So I I, it's, I think it's anybody's guess what's going to happen in November. Uh, hopefully, cooler heads will prevail. And but I think that the Democrats, for example, they have instead of. Uh, uh, accepting what happened January 6th as a huge mistake, they are then trying to turn that against one of the candidates in a way that is going to be very difficult to handle. What do you think is the future of journalism? Do we need journalism to avoid, let's say, a third world war? Do we need better journalism? Yes, I think that and that's, that's why it's so important that we tell yeah. people what it what is happening behind the doors, behind the scenes, and that that's, should that's be That's a very good point to end on. This is uh, Pelle Neros-Taylor at 
TNT Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pair. Awesome. <laughs>